0: Seen a video nasty? I wouldn't. I have far too much. <laughs> how, how can you judge on a video nasty? Oh, you've never seen one. I actually don't need to see visually what I know is in that film. Hello there, and oh, welcome. It's the Video podcast. My name's Christopher Brown. And a couple of weeks ago, I said, I'm not, you know, I, I, this, for the format of Vidya the, the show, um, sometimes a film doesn't really fit. So, like, um, Friday the 13th, part two, there are lots of retrospectives. There are books about the making of those the, the, the trilogy of films, of interviews all the cast. You know, there's um, Crystal Lake Memories, Goes into great granular detail about about the films, so it's tricky therefore to kind of like you know in a in a twenty five minute twenty twenty five minute you know episode which is designed to kind of just give you a bit a bit of background and a taste and kind of like tie the nasties together to give you much of an insight. Um, That's probably triply so of the thing. So um, John Carpenter's The Thing from nineteen eighty two is like. I'm assuming everyone who's listening to this who's listening to this now would have seen it at least once, probably for some of you it would be one of your favorite films of all time, and it it's ridiculous for me to therefore kind of say, "Oh listen, let me tell you all about this film." um I think Video Nasty's kind of sits far more comfortably on the, in the more obscure films on the list. The flip side of that is I'm very aware that the more popular films tend to get more <laughs> listeners um so so you know let's uh, let's not ignore that. So I suppose today what I'm gonna do is talk a bit about the impact of the film, um, what happened with it and why maybe it became a cult classic. This oh. is US station thirty one. You read me? We found something in the ice. We need some help down here. Can anybody hear me? We found something. We found something. We found something. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies, nobody left to kill it. And then it's won. You guys gonna listen to Gary? We can beat one of those things! So first things first, the thing, 1982 sci-fi horror directed by John Carpenter, written by Bill Lancaster, based on the um, the novella by John W. Campbell Jr. Who goes there? Probably more so than the the 50s sci-fi film, although the um, the titles kind of allude to them being a closer connection. Stories about uh, American researchers in an Antarctic scientist base who, for some reason, have loads of guns and flamethrowers and explosives. We'll ignore that. Um, Who uh, encounter uh, an extraterrestrial life that can imitate and assimilate other organisms and uh, would be incredibly dangerous and is incredibly dangerous to these people on the base, but technically would probably be even more dangerous if it it got into a wider population, as in if it got off Antarctica. And the film is a paranoid tale about a group of men all questioning who is the thing, and who is the the alien that's integrated them, and, and how many of them are infected. And it's great. (laughs) It's really great. Although you wouldn't have known about it at the time because The Thing was, initially, when it was released, very unpopular. So the production had started in the mid-1970s as a faithful adaptation of novella uh, following the 1951 The Thing From Another World, the old um, Howard Hawks film. Again, a film that kind of um, alluded to... um, to, to paranoia, um, although you know it certainly didn't have the the creature effects this film's got. So the and it, it kind of had various iterations and various people. Toby Hooper had been involved at one point, point. Um, and like it, the, the film through the through the, the, the mid to late seventies had various um, people involved, including John Landis as well. And um, in the end, Carpenter kind of loosely got involved, mainly because of success from Halloween. There was a feeling that they, they could get a good horror film using him. Uh, and Carpenter was reluctant uh, because he saw it as a straight remake of the Hawks film and felt that you couldn't really surpass it, That as it was a, a classic. Um he goes back to the original novella, though, and finds it creepy and feels like there's a lot of um, tone and moods into it, and it's similar to Agatha Christie's, and then there were none, which, again, is a mystery around uh, people who are vanishing and not knowing who the perpetrator of those, the, 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 those deaths are, and you know, as, as people kind of disappear. So Carpenter gets the crew together, including Dean Kundi, who uh, worked with him on Halloween, and then effectively then puts the blockers on it for a bit because he thinks he's going to get a passion project made uh, El Diablo a um, comedy western. So Carpenter, um spends longer than you'd imagine uh, normally on a film like this kind of prepping for it. Uh, it's kind of ruminating in his mind a lot and I think that's one of the successes and we'll get on to that in a bit. Those incredibly as well, to Manages to get a lot of money for the effects, the special effects, 1.5 million dollars out of a 15 million dollar budget. From this team um, of people that Carpenter feels he can work with, the creature effects are are, are, are certainly one of the best. So um, Rob Bottom, who um, goes on after this to make some crazy stuff, you know what I mean, like. RoboCop and Total Recall and all sorts of just amazing uh, creature effect films, had worked with um, Carpenter um, for The Fog and he kind of was brought in again relatively early on in mid-1981. During this time as well, Carpenter was working with Kurt Russell on ideas and uh, Kurt Russell then goes on to play uh, the, the lead character McCready and um, to kind of draw up some some more ideas and again this kind of idea of of, of taking your time and really thinking about stuff uh, it, it is shown and it's this work and an incredible team of like work a thirty five man team um which also included um Eric jensen who'd working on the incredible again amazing creature effects and the howling had just come off that to kind of um work on the on the special effects gang. Built probably the reason one of the reasons why the film is so beloved today, but also one of the reasons why it failed at the time. What is the thing before we get onto it? it? It it's an incredibly intricately shot and thought out paranoid action horror film. It's a film that um, it's great. It's great for YouTube analysis people. So it's incredibly well thought out down to the breath of uh, the characters and who may or may not have um, have visible breath coming out of their mouth at the end shall we say about who has clothes that are ripped and who doesn't and you can uh, and, and there's an, there's a lot of thought that's gone into um, the overarching mystery of who is being uh, assimilated by the thing and when it's happened. And there are cl- although it's never explicit in the film, there are clues that sit out throughout this. Now, bear in mind, though, that at this point when this is made, a lot of that detail would not have been spotted in the cinema. Um, I mean, you know, it, it, it's a film that you could talk about afterwards, perhaps, and say, oh, did you see that bit? And, oh, I think it's like that. But the movie itself will not have not been designed for a VHS audience and the flip side of that is the film is incredibly, like the 80s renowned for a period of potential cinematic excess so the um, viciousness and and extreme violence of some of the films we've already mentioned about, you know, RoboCop and, and that kind of thing when we look before then before the thing, films like Halloween, etc., although violent and scary, were um, maybe not so much. But slasher films offered uh, an audience and a market. Suggested that uh, you know, um, good kills and sexy people would 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 work well. The Problem with all that, of course, is that. The Thing's violence isn't like that. It's organic and grisly and bubbly and gory and gooey. Um, It's visceral. People melt. Their bodies expand and explode. Tentacles come out of heads. It has far more in its DNA to Lovecraft than to Friday the 13th. The Washington Post describes it having a wretched excess the New York Times declared it instant junk, and even the plots sort were of described as incredibly boring, as well. And uh, that, and Newsweek said that the um, the spe- that any kind of impact the special effects it had on would be were diminished by the um, by the who is it plot line. which seems bizarre now, but. Um, I mean, a, a one-location movie where people start getting taken over is, uh, and disappearing is, is pretty <laughs> did fair, and uh, not something I normally describe as being boring, you know. I think the thing was that it was... Um, the film was easily dismissed. So Ebert said it was scary, but often nothing original, which seems bizarre. You know what I mean? It's just like... So frustrating that stuff. It's like, you know, it, it sets out for its core purpose of scaring you, but oh, you know, oh it's nothing original. What the fuck do you want? You know what I mean? Like 99% of all cinema is it's generic. And then obviously the New York Times and Vincent Canby said that the it was entertaining if the, only if the viewer needs to see spider-legged heads and dog autopsies. Which is harsh, um, but you know, if, but fair, I suppose, in the sense that you know, it, it, its violence is is certainly one of the reasons why it has a reputation. It does. I mean, I remember being shown this uh, when I was not a teenager, uh, and uh, like fourteen, maybe, and like just thinking it was incredibly, you know, just eye-openingly <laughs> extreme. And uh, I think, how, what the hell is this film? This is insane. And I think that kind of um, visceral kind of reaction to it and being, you know, really taken aback by it, by the gore on it. Um, I'm not, you know, back then I was certainly not the kind of young man that would laugh at that kind of stuff. I'd be kind of um, shocked by it. I think maybe put people off. The film has a reputation for bombing horribly. It didn't bomb horribly, but it didn't do particularly well. So it cost about 15 mil and it earns 19.6 million US in its theatrical run. So, um, when you include marketing and, and it was hyped, um, it almost certainly did not, um, make anyone any particular cash, but, uh, I don't think anyone was destitute afterwards. Um, and you could argue why, you know what I mean? Why did this work? So it comes out around about the same time as E.T. And that's a classic kind of thing about uh, the thing that people say, Ah, oh, well, you know, people wanted happy, smiley aliens. You know, that, that made, film made $619 million. They didn't want something so nihilistic. The film opened up on the same day as Blade Runner, um, which also did not do the best business in the world. And also there was a lot of sci-fi and fantasy at the time. Mad Max 2 made 35 million um Tron made 33 million I think there's an argument like a lot of films like this that the films just it just cost so much money to make you know like horror um you can make you know if you can make it cheap you can make some cash and with this with this you know they were before the the, the they started shooting, there was a lot of rehearsal happening, they were refrigerating sets uh, all this money on effects work um, really came together and then it's so visceral that the audience the audience, and the critics at just went whoa no no no, this is, a, this is a lot and up to this point cops had been riding relatively high the fog and Halloween in particular had kind of caught attention because of the poor performance of the thing, he got yanked off Firestarter straight away. And he did have a multiple film contract with Universal, but the studio decides to buy him out instead. And, you know, obviously he continues to make films, and I would argue that some of the films he goes on to make are, you know, still in this purple period for him you know i think a lot of you look at carpenter you can basically say from depends on your tolerance to, to dark stars and um, hippiness a uh, dark star pretty much through to they live is all gold you know there's a couple of tv movies in there um you know, some people are a bit weird about Prince of Darkness, and I think it's fantastic. Starman's great, but it was clearly an attempt to kind of step away from horror. But you know, pretty much through the 80s, he is absolutely banging about the park. Uh, and but the but the reality was that the thing gets called a pornographer of violence, and does not know what to do with it, and didn't really under- realize that what he was making would be rejected so vehemently. So they have a problem with the ending originally. So there's an there was a plan to do uh McCready they take Childs out of the equation with McCready as one one version of the film and see how that plays. And then they go, Oh, that's not not great either. That, doesn't perform particularly brilliantly well, but slightly better. There's like a a different version written which around McCready is saved and his blood tested. And so you know he's got away and he's fine. But there's a general feeling that that was not, that was really kind of very cheesy. But the film doesn't, so the, the film doesn't give you the, but the film did give you the, the, the response, I suppose, or the, the, the relief, you know what I mean? It's the pat on the back. Order has been restored. Everything is now okay. So you're not gonna get huge worth of mouth buzz from a film that maybe the new the knew wasn't gonna um wasn't gonna kind of we're gonna you know, grab the attention and make people feel better about themselves, you know, it's like, oh, go and see that film, it's really nihilistic and the gore scene, you know, and regardless of, and and your girlfriend probably going to hate you because the gore scenes are horrendous you know, it it fits uncomfortably but when it comes out on video and later TV as well, a a, a, a slightly um, variant um, version of the film uh, well, the TV movie version where um, some of the girls cut and they changed the end and so the you see the dog running away? <laughs> it So it's the fingerscapes kind of thing. And it kind of grows in confidence and, and, and love then. So we see, you know, it's released on a DVD, uh, has this like very detailed documentary and explains stuff and has alternative scenes. And it's a nice DVD, although if I remember right, it was not anamorphic. Um, and that kind of uh, helps grow the legacy of the film. It's a lovely set, well looked after. And then it's come out on various Blu-ray releases since. 2K restoration and a 4K restoration um, as well. Which kind of allows people to, to re-watch, re- a, a, watch in the comfort of home, which I think is a film that benefits from intimacy, Um, You know, you don't want to be sitting there watching those gore scenes and people just bursting out laughing next to you, which I think people tend to do. Um, And it it deliberately tries to nudge towards that. You know, the reaction to the spider-head stuff is is very certainly designed to kind of make you feel a bit better about what's the fucking sanity that's happening, you know. And I think it's scenes around um, Cold War tension... And, you know, what is this film? This film is a classic sci-fi movie about an alien, in inverted commas, alien coming into a, a community and disrupting it. The fact that that community is small and all male is, um, is, is, you know, is possibly a little bit more unusual, you know. But this sits as comfortably with something like The Blob as well. Uh, uh, and you know, let's be honest with you, the invasion of the body snatchers and that kind of, those, and the hints of those kind of Red Scare, McCarthyism uh, illusions that certainly sat very comfortably in the 50s, but kind of like energized and like injected with, with more stuff and more violence and more gore and pushed in front of the screen. Um, and I think from there, you know, that's what potentially has c- captured the imagination of the thing over maybe some of the, some of the types of films, which from the time, which are loved, but maybe in a different way, like the darkness or the, the, the atmosphere of the fog, which is the most beloved thing about that. Um, you know, people sit there and analyze the thing, you know, they, they go into great detail about what it's saying, what it is, and and what it's trying to, to, to do. Um, you can look at, um, the way the characters interact, the distrust, um, how they deal with the older characters um, and how they are seen in in the community, how the, how the younger scene in the community, masculinity. You can look at um, even the first opening shot, the shot where you know when McCready's introduced, and his solution to losing the chess match, to being outwitted, is to blow up. His toy, his game, um, you know, which certainly is a, a clear indicator, a through line in terms of how he reacts throughout the entire film, and how that very toxic masculinity in truth, you know, oh I've lost fuck you style, is, is is replicated in some of his actions. And although he's the hero, he is also the you know willing to completely destroy to get himself to that that to, to that final point where you know well. You've not. Uh, I've not won, but you've not fucking won either. The film also has elements in terms of fear of, of nature, of, of of barren terrain. So the, the 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 elements in itself, man against the elements, which is a again a very hyper masculine idea. But um, you know, being a being alone in an outpost. Um, surrounded by uh, a hostile domain and something nearby, uh, an organism, nature itself coming up against you, whether that be alien in this case or not. There's fear of infection, of disease, which, um, you know, you could equally argue is a, is an element that sits comfortably in um, certainly the 1980s discourse. Although that might I might be retrofitting that in fairness, uh, since it was only eighty in the early the late seventies, early eighties when this came out. But at the same time, you know, you could argue before its time that's one of the reasons why it was then uh, appreciated more later. It's interesting though, and I've spoken about this analysis and rewatching and rewatching. Kate Russell says that analysing the end scene for clues is missing the point he continues Carpenter and I worked on the ending of that movie together a long time we were both bringing the audience right back to square one At the end of the day that the, was the position these people were in they just didn't know anything they didn't know if they knew who they were I love that over the years that movie's got on it's due because people were able to get past the horrificness of the monster see what the movie was about which was paranoia and Carpenter is, has done the old barnum thing of saying I, I know who it is but I'm not going to tell you you know I think that's fair. I mean, obviously Russell there is talking about the importance of the the themes and the the thematic importance of fear, a fear of the other, a fear of an external other, but also fear that, you know, your neighbor has it in for you. And that's, uh, again, you know, you think, think of something like the burbs, you know what I mean? The Joe Dante film, that's exactly the same kind of idea at the end of the day, but talking to a different route, you know, the, and the 80s is littered with that kind of um, touch, you know, when you think about um, David Lynch's Blue Velvet, which kind of scratches, you know, the picket fence and finds a very seedy underbelly underneath. Or you look at, um, you know, where's Cravens to people under the stairs, you know, the, the, this idea that, you know, you, you can kind of stumble across horrendousness to just in the neighbourhood. Due to a lot of that stuff, but I think particularly the the, the ability to kind of re engage with the artwork in a different format at home in an intimate setting, the fact that it is clearly more complicated than it, uh, it you know than it would initially appear and um, although the film is incredibly violent um, I think tastes kind of, over the eighties had shifted to kind of being more tolerant of that. The film has now become some like high watermark in in horror, uh, leading to a prequely kind of film mm-hmm. um, in the in the 90s. And there's talk again of, of revising the original core material to create a new version of the thing. I mean, there was a point clearly when saying the thing is Carpenter's best film would be a you know a, a coffee table. Oh, hello. Look at this guy being all, <laughs> and now I think that probably wouldn't be a particularly controversial opinion, um, and that and that is completely because of, you know, what is now approaching up to, to forty years of kind of reassessing it, and looking at it, and and it it has hit a numerous times top one hundred um, horror film, top fifty, top twenty horror film lists, and Carpenter. I've seen it now as being, you know, if it had been a hit, his career would have been different. And he, he said he enjoyed making the films he did. He enjoyed making Christine, Starman and Big Trouble in Little China. And again, those films are are, are, are all great and all classics. But his, um, his career would have been different. I mean, the influence of the thing is insane still whether that be a uh, parasitic horror in things like the X-Files in quite clear homages like, um, for T H A W, not the, <laughs> not the Marvel film. Um, in films like, you know, Del Toro, JJ J. Abrams, Neil Blomkamp, all stated as being, being high watermark, uh, for them. And, and certainly important, um, uh, The Maricone soundtrack, which I haven't even touched on, it's got a Maricone soundtrack, phenomenal. um, Was used again by Tarantino in the Hateful Eight. um, I mean, which an allusion to the fact the films share similar themes, as in question who your neighbour is, what's really going on under the hood, and I kind of even just out of the snowy setting. And Tarantino actually says that the thing was an inspiration for us for our dogs, probably not as much as some some Hong Kong action film, shall we say, but that's understandable as well because again what it what is it about it's about a group of people who and none of them know what is going on, and all of them are trying to work out whether they can get out alive and we've seen com- comics we've seen computer games we saw that as i said that that um prequel film from twenty eleven um this and there's an attempt of at something coming with Bloomhouse to kind of remake it in a different way, um, and kind of you know I think and I think what that does is indicate the extent of the films and the stories, kind of themes. I don't think it, I think it's, it's unsurprising that at a time when as a society we are looking at each other and wondering you know, who is infected and are they doing their best to stop me from being infected that there would be talk of a, a return to this kind of paranoid um, horror Somewhere in the Antarctic Something ancient Something alien John Carpenter's The Thing Rigadar. So, yes, so, um, if you want to get a hold of me, please do. My email address is at gmail.com You can get me on Twitter. That's at orange underscore monkey or you can go to the website thelasthorrorpodcast.com or vigenastiespodcast.com and leave any messages there. Um, a couple of things. Um, the first thing is that um, I am also on a Screaming Queens podcast uh, this week talking about the Top Sensation, um, the 1969 Italian exploitation film. Uh, so if you search for Screaming Queens with Z, you can hear me uh, ramble my way through uh, an hour about that film and talking about goat sex and all sorts of stuff. Uh, next week, we're going to do Wrong Way uh which is a 1970s trashy sex exploitation uh, thriller um American thriller um about women getting kidnapped and all sorts of that nastiness um and also I want to draw your attention to something that wasn't highlighted very very much but is interesting so the BBFC has knocked back a Nasty again I imagine. So last year um, they uh, knocked back uh, Love Camp 7 for digital release, uh, but this month, or this week, so late Jan, um, they knocked back Gascapo's uh, Last Orgy, which is the first time since 2002 that they've knocked back any um, anything for a physical release. Um, that was one of the nasties. Uh, invariably, they could get away with it being cut slightly, Um they have banned the films before. Um, so, what I want to do very quickly is um, discuss that. I mean, A, fascinating, but 88 um, films put it forward as well, which have, as we know, released a lot of nasties. So, the rejection explanation is the following Gustavus Last Orgy is an Italian exploitation film from 1977, which a Jewish woman revisits the site of a concentration camp in which she was formally imprisoned and subjected to torture, terrorization, humiliation, sexual violence. BBFC guidelines state that, as a last resort, the BBFC will refuse to classify a work where a central concept of the work is unacceptable, such as sustained focus on rape, other non-consensual sexually violent behaviour or sadistic violence. Gestapo's lastology is largely composed of scenes of sadistic, strong sadistic violence, humiliation, degradation and non-consensual sexual activity involving rape, all of which occurs within a clearly anti-Semitic context. Its central concept is therefore unacceptable and sadistic and sexually abusive material contains is too evasive to be effectively addressed by cuts. Accordingly, the BBFC has refused certification to this work. Right. So, um, very quickly, and I have covered this argument before. The BBFC, therefore, are saying that the Gestapo's last orgy is unacceptable because it is intrinsically uh, dangerous to society. Because if it was just offensive, they would have passed it. In the same way they turn around and said, SS experiment camp is trashy and, and offensive, but it is not dangerous, and therefore we will pass it. I am not going to get into the argument to whether Gestapo's last orgy is dangerous or not. I will leave that up to you as somebody, I am assuming, who may well have seen it before. If you've not that's, I mean, to be fucking honest with you, I'm not arguing with that either. The film is um, not my favourite on the list by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I uh, I got into, I think I got a few more hours about the film when I, when I originally covered it back in 2013 or whenever it was, and I, I said that it felt very much like a filmmaker had gone away, watched um, The Night Porter, and then, um, and then. Try to do something and go. You know what that needs to be explosive. Um, so it's, it's it's fairly offensive. It it, it 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 actually makes it probably worse because it almost alludes to trying not to be. You know, it's trying to like it's reaching for something more, but clearly isn't. Clearly is kind of just wants to show you the, 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 the grim shit. Same way Love Camp Seven does. But that's one side, and I will leave this with you. Um because it's not for me to say and I, 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 my, my argument is it's not for the PBFCs to say either um, is this film dangerous and do consenting adults have a decision to make that's just for me for the, there you go there, there, I, there, is no grand, there is no greater argument than that and that is what the core of all this always is awkward as that is and as messy as it is because ultimately it's a societal decision anyway thanks very much for listening talking of offensive films involving rape and humiliation next week I'm going to do wrong white so until then take care and I'll speak to you soon. goodbye I have never seen a video Nasty I wouldn't I have far too much how, how can you judge on a video Oh, you never seen one? I actually don't need to see visually what I know is in that film.